0: In 1996, Bill Gates said, content is king. And boy, was he right. Three decades later, it still occupies the throne. For lawyers, law firms, and companies serving the legal industry, content marketing and thought leadership marketing are a must if they want to build their books of business or increase their revenues. Hi, I'm Wayne Pollock. I'm a former AMLAW50 senior associate who discovered the world of content marketing and thought leadership marketing and hasn't looked back. In each episode of this podcast, I interview lawyers and legal industry in-house marketers who are doing big things with their content marketing and thought leadership marketing. This is Legally Contented. Welcome to episode 76 of Legally Contented. I'm your host, Wayne Pollock. We've had a number of guests on this podcast talk about their social media marketing efforts because social media is a great way to build your prominence, to build your book of business, and get out in front of current and future clients and referral sources. My guest in this episode, Scott Oliver, is following that playbook. Scott is an equity partner at Lewis Capus in Indianapolis, which is a law firm with about three dozen attorneys. Scott works mainly in the SBA, Small Business Administration, lending group, helping banks and non-bank entities close transactions across the country. Scott has more than 18,000 followers on LinkedIn and more than 5,500 followers on Twitter. In this episode, we talk about how Scott is able to mix the professional content that lawyers often publish on social media with personal content that shows off to his clients and referral sources that he is a human being, that he's a husband, that he's a father, and that he is someone they can get to know and have a sense of as opposed to just an attorney. In this conversation scott and i cover social media marketing for attorneys including his process for creating content how to pivot when the content that works on a social media platform no longer seems to work how to create original personal content that doesn't pander and the future of social media marketing for lawyers scott has some great tips here for how to balance professional content with personal content i hope that with scott's guidance you can balance your professional content with your personal content. You can become a bit more prolific on social media and hopefully build your practice and your prominence. Enjoy my conversation with Scott. Scott Oliver, welcome to Legally Contented. Please introduce yourself to our audience.
1: Hey, thank you, Wayne. I'm glad to be here. Well, like you said, my name is Scott Oliver. I'm an equity partner here at Lewis Capus. Uh, We're an Indianapolis-based law firm, uh, but we do work throughout the nation. Uh, I'm actually in our SBA lending department. So we're working with banks, non-bank lenders to close transactions throughout all 50 states. And honestly, I'm biased, but I think we have one of the best teams in the nation here. And and I say team specifically because I I don't do it alone. I, I have a lot of attorneys and staff that help me out. So looking forward to our conversation today, and I'm an open book.
0: Scott, I appreciate you taking time to chat with us. The reason I asked you to join me is because you have a niche practice. You are in the Midwest. You are not in a glamorous coastal city. You're not at an Amlaw 10 law firm, and yet you've found success on LinkedIn and Twitter while operating in a niche practice in the Midwest city. So talk to me a little bit about your background, how you came to be where you are today, and how you found SBA as an actual legal practice that was interesting to you and that you thought you could grow.
1: Yeah. Well, like you said, I, I grew up in the Midwest, so I was born and raised uh, here in Indiana. So I ended up going to Purdue University, boiler up, uh, ended up having to go to IU for law school. So the IU McKinney School of Law, it's a downtown Indianapolis law school with all of the prominent law schools in its backyard. Right. So going through law school, there were a handful of firms that were known for specific things. And like you said, some of them were Amlaw, uh, some of them weren't, some were Boutique, et cetera. So. Throughout the interview process, I interviewed at just about every single one of them. Uh, I, I got several offers from some of the big law firms, uh, some of the small law firms as well. But I really found my fit here uh, at Lewis Capus because we're a mid-sized law firm, so it's very much uh, entrepreneurial in a way. Uh, you have a lot more autonomy to figure out what you want to do and then really dig into those things that are important to you. So. Uh, OCI process is an interviewing process where you come on as a summer associate and then hopefully, you know, fingers crossed, you get that offer at the end of the summer. I ended up doing that and rotating through all of our different departments. So we have quite a few departments because we're not a small law firm. We're we're pretty big for Indianapolis, but we would rotate through all of those and try to find your fit. That's our whole idea uh, for law students is to come in here and find your fit. If that's litigation, great. If it's you know transactional work, great. But for me, uh, I stopped at the SBA Lending Group, which is a offset of our transactional group. So once I hit that space, I found my mentors and they said, look, this is a very niche practice. Like you said, it's a niche practice, but that's not a bad thing. That's a really good thing because you are setting yourself out as an expert in the field. You're learning the regulations of this government guaranteed program but you're also working night and day on hundreds, if not thousands of deals uh, over a period of years, seeing all of the different types of structures, working with the M&A attorneys, working with title companies, working with all of these different parties to quarterback a deal from open to close. And to me, that was incredibly appealing because not only is it interesting, it's the stuff that I'm interested in, uh, it is also very transferable in the event that the economy tanks. Uh, very transferable in the event that the SBA shut down tomorrow. It's not going to, but if it did, the skills are there to be able to do something else. So to me, somebody who's planning long-term, that made sense. But after a while, what really kind of kept me there and and made me have a quote unquote passion for, right, is it's the happy side of law. That, That sounds strange, but every single deal that we get in the door. It's interesting. It's complex. The people are, are for the most part, incredibly great to work with on the other side when there's buy side and sell side counsel. And at the end of the day, you know, we're not angry because it was a divorce. We're not angry because it was a criminal matter. Everybody is excited. The seller just got paid. Maybe they're retiring. The buyer just got paid. Their dreams are coming true. And no matter how bumpy the road was to get there, once we sign the dotted line, money goes out the door. We just did a good thing. And, and that's really satisfying to me.
0: We'll talk about this later on. But I think one of the great things about your practice, any niche practice, especially in the MA world, the corporate world, is that because you see so many deals and presumably so many industries, even within kind of the SBA loan world, that's so much fodder for you mm-hmm. to either comment on in terms of social media or to write articles about or to maybe even niche down further let's say you want to be known as the smb attorney or the deals attorney for you know hvac companies or mm-hmm. dental practices or medical practices and obviously it might be restricted based on where you're licensed to practice but the idea that scott isn't just An attorney focusing on deals in the small medium-sized world and isn't just familiar with sba but he knows exactly how to get these deals done for hvac folks or dental offices and he understands the operations issues and the business issues that might be not reflected on the, on the deal paper, but would be something that a buyer or a seller would very much need guidance on because they want to make sure is their operating capital, right? Are, do we need a non-compete? What happens in my industry when businesses are sold? So I think that is so cool that you have that ability to look at volumes of data mm-hmm. based on your practice and suss things out and decide, I could use this for marketing purposes. I could use this for client counsel purposes. I think it's just so cool. Yeah,
1: and and I appreciate that. I really do. And I I try to market that when I'm talking to younger attorneys to join our team too, or even paralegals to join our team, because it really is quite interesting, the amount of deals that you see and the frequency that you see with certain types of industries. So when we're working with the banks, we're seeing just about everything. It's mainly bread and butter, SMB, small to medium sized business acquisitions and real estate acquisitions. But you'll go through periods of time over the years where you know one year, for whatever reason, HVAC companies are huge and you're seeing a ton of quote-unquote boring business acquisitions. That's what we're seeing right now. And honestly, I love those types of businesses. But five, six years ago, I was seeing a lot of hotels. Uh, I was seeing a lot of restaurants. I was seeing a lot of funeral homes, oddly enough, right? So you become almost an expert in these strange, nuanced, super niche areas, not only from the bank side, but from the buy side as well, from the sell side as well. So when these entrepreneurs... You know are reaching out or they're looking for a referral i I know who to send them to uh if we can take it certainly we will Uh, but it's all about being a subject matter expert in whatever it is that you're trying to accomplish for those clients And, and for me that's sba for the lenders but that's important to recognize for any practice area to figure out who the experts are and who to go to to get the best service
0: can you touch on the business model on the lender side, because we're going to talk about your social media efforts and we'll talk about your business development and marketing efforts, but it's important to know how you would be able to get business or what kinds of relationships firms have with lenders as a way to inform why you might take certain tasks when it comes to your marketing and BD efforts.
1: Yeah, certainly. And I think there, once we start talking about LinkedIn and Twitter, there's going to be uh, some differences there, but for SBA banks and lenders specifically, these are institutional clients. These aren't one-off relationships where somebody reaches out and say, Hey, I have, I have this one SBA deal. I need you to close it. What's your fee sheet? What are you going to do for me? And then, you know, we're never talk again. Uh, I would say virtually all of my clients, honestly, are deep relationships. There's something that started maybe from a DM, uh, a direct message a long time ago, maybe from work and they've just moved shops or something like that many, many years ago. And they're sending volume deals uh, and really building out with our group. I sometimes will tell them, you know, when we start this relationship, it's not just an attorney client relationship, although of course it is. um, It's really a partnership because we will grow with them. I've seen banks grow from being nobodies to being, you know, top lenders in the country to being these real forces in the industry, but that doesn't happen overnight. And we're obviously not the the crux of making that happen or anything like that. But when they're building from the ground up, our processes have to match their processes. Our values have to match their values and our You know, ideas of how and if they even want to scale that at the specific bank have to be aligned because we're working with them a lot uh, on non billable things. The billable work comes when those deals come in. And that could be, you know, five deals, 10 deals, 50 deals, 100 deals plus per year, just depending on the client. But in any event, it's a very long term relationship with that specific institutional client.
0: One thing they don't tell us in law school or MBA school or really any school is that when you get to develop those types of longer term business relationships, oftentimes the personal relationships develop in parallel. Mm-hmm. And that is, to me, equally as enjoyable as the client writing a check to you each month and you being stimulated by the work you're doing for them. But the idea that as you get to know them, hopefully over the course of months and years, as you get to know them personally, you actually beco- can become a better attorney for them because you understand what their worries are. You understand how they live their lives. You hear about these kind of unfiltered stories they might tell you about the good, the bad, the ugly of the business. And then you, if you're listening closely, you can understand. Okay, well, gee, they just mentioned that they really hate when their clients don't respond to them or don't acknowledge an email. So now I can acknowledge an email, even if I won't respond substantively to their question for a day or two, I can at least say, hey, Scott, got your email. Have a great weekend. Let's catch up early Monday on this. Right? It, the personal relationship parallels the business relationship and both get better if you're smart enough to understand how one can help the other get better
1: hundred percent. I mean, I, I feel like I should interview you just on that because we don't know each other super well, but I couldn't have said it better myself. And when I'm working with clients, I'll say the same thing, you know, because if they're sending volume, I'm not an island. Right. I, I mentioned teams at the beginning because that is such an important thing to me to have these people around me who have the same sort of ideals, uh, same sort of philosophies when it comes to closing deals, because if I have a big bank that comes in and wants to send me volume business, Yes, of course, I'm gonna be working directly on a lot of those deals, but I'm also gonna introduce you to my other colleagues, uh, my SBA colleagues, my paralegals, who are absolutely critical on a smooth SBA process. Uh, Those people, including myself, will develop these close relationships with the closers. And we call them pods or verticals, whatever you wanna call them, but usually it's the same attorney and the same paralegal team that works with the same closer over a period of time. Because we can say, just like you said, oh, I know that your work schedule is a bit odd. Maybe you go home early and work late into the night. Okay, well, that's good for us to know because I know when I can get you the information that suits you best. I can make your life easier. You can make my life easier. And in turn, we're providing excellent customer service for your customers. And if we're able to get their customers to come back to the bank and say, wow, your outside counsel was phenomenal. The closer was phenomenal. Underwriting was phenomenal that's marketing for the bank. And if there's good marketing for the bank, that benefits everybody. Right? So learning your client and the client learning you is, well, more important than just getting the client the door. It's that long term, that institutional nature that you talked about earlier.
0: You mentioned at the outset that you're an equity partner. As far as I know, very few equity partners get to become equity partners without understanding marketing and business development and getting good results from their marketing and business development. Where in your career did you come to understand that lawyering at a firm like yours isn't just about putting your head down and doing legal work, but it's about developing relationships and bringing in business through marketing and business development?
1: That was it was probably a long time ago, I'd say before law school, uh, really just due to very good mentors uh, who were in practice, who were saying those sort of things to me that would say, you know, if you want to practice in private law, uh, which was kind of always my goal was to either run or work in a law firm, they say, you know, work is the foundation. You have to be able to provide quality service. If you don't do that, you will not have clients. Right. That's an understanding that's foundational. Past that, if you want to move up, if you want to scale a practice, you have to have people skills. You have to be able to build those relationships because without that, you're only working on existing matters or somebody else's work. You have to be able to put those people in the seats. You have to be able to put the clients in the door, and then you have to be able to grow and sustain those relationships. That's you know the key to scaling anything. Uh, So I think that's always been in the back of my mind, uh, even throughout law school when I would meet with attorneys to try to get jobs, right? That was something that you did because you had to be a salesperson in a way. You had to go out and you had to develop relationships. It doesn't stop your first year as an associate, or it shouldn't in my opinion, and it never stops when you're an equity partner or beyond. It's all about the relationships.
0: The practice of law has errors. And you can kind of see, like, now we're in an era where legal technology is coming in. We've got social media everywhere empowering attorneys to bring in business, whether they are partners at PI firms or they could be mid level associates at corporate firms, but they have outlets to bring in business and perhaps disrupt the totem pole, when you've got a mid-level associate who becomes a rainmaker, all of a sudden the equity partners are like, wait, that doesn't compute. And like the math doesn't work out and the promotion doesn't work out. They're not used to that. When I came out of law school, this was 2009, this was Great Recession. So in a number of ways, the legal industry was different, but it was very much the sense that I got and my friends from law school got when working at a large law firm was put your head down, Mm -hmm. fill your hours, do your work, don't even think about bringing in clients. Your goal is to build your time because there are people who are just like you who are now out on the street because they got deferred or they got laid off because of the economy. And as we saw during COVID, with the the pendulum swing toward associate power, and now it's probably swinging back toward partners. It's interesting how entrepreneurship still is not something that many lawyers own that they are willing to engage with and think about. And even income partners who literally know what it takes to get to an equity partnership position and that level of prestige and financial rewards still do not want to take those steps to go on social media beyond copy and pasting a link to a Law360 article they wrote. So it's amazing to me. Do you find, you mentioned that your firm is entrepreneurial. Does that entrepreneurialness spread through to all of the attorneys or do you think there are still attorneys who are on like the upper spectrum, maybe like you who get it, understand it and live it while some people might be surrounded by it, but aren't quite able to internalize it.
1: I think it's the second part. So I I think we're very much in a position here where we could empower people to take their own initiative, but some people don't want that and that's okay. Right. So we'll talk later about social media, right? Social media is not for everybody. But if you give it a try, if you give it a shot and it feels right for you and you do it appropriately, it can have some pretty massive benefits. And some of those benefits, no matter how hard you preach it, some people aren't going to understand. Some people just aren't going to get it. But the ones who do, uh, you can see them take off like a rocket ship. And and I'll do this with with people here, with people who are um, in law school. I teach a class uh, at a law school here at IU. Um, I'll put it out there. I'll tell them the value of it. I'll preach the value of what it could be. And, you know, 80, 90 percent of them, even though they're in their 20s, will say, no, I'm just not interested. That's fine. Well, the 10 percent or 5 percent, however many it is that say, oh, I want to try this. They do. And then they come back years down the road and say, well, I am so thankful that I did that because I've literally put rocket fuel uh, into my career and it's just accelerated.
0: It's amazing. And you and we have some of those success stories on this podcast. We had Eric Pastafici on here a while ago, just had Paige Sparks, who has 1.7 million followers on TikTok and is building a firm with her sister-in-law mm-hmm. based on that flow of clients and inquiries. It's amazing what attorneys can do with just a little bit of motivation and just a little bit of understanding, right? They'll learn as they go, but just dipping their toes in. next thing you know, you're literally swimming in it and you are changing the trajectory of your life, of your career, because you took that chance. Mm -hmm. And on that note, let's talk a little about your social media efforts. You're up to almost 17,000 LinkedIn followers. You've got about 5,300 Twitter followers. A lot of attorneys, if they did one or the other and they hit those numbers, they would be at the top of the class. You somehow managed to do both while holding down that leisurely position of an equity partner at at a law firm. So I want to hear about your approach to LinkedIn and Twitter. And that's a broad question. So let's start with how you got started on LinkedIn and Twitter. Why go to both? Did you see one start to develop and you went to the other? Just give me the early days of building your presence online.
1: Yeah, so I'm, I'm actually fairly new to Twitter. I've had an account forever, but I didn't really start using it until about a year or so ago. Um, so that's relatively, re- relatively new. LinkedIn, on the other hand, I really started using that when I first started practicing law or slightly beforehand. Um, so back then it was more, hey, here's my resume online right? And nobody was really producing content like they are now. That's changed. People are producing a lot of content. You see LinkedIn influencers, even lawfluencers. I think that's a funny word, uh, but people uh, who are on LinkedIn. But back when I started, I would get on there and I would post updates about what I learned as a first-year associate. Uh, The larger benefit wasn't from just posting, it was from creating articles. So every single time that I would learn something new about a deal process, a deal structure, uh, the SBA, standard operating procedures that are super dense, complex, and gray at best, uh, I would write about it uh, in very simple, short terms. So I would have clients who say, okay, well, what is an EPCOC transaction? Okay. I, I won't bore you with the details of what that is, but it's a complex uh, structure, I suppose, uh, under SBA regulations. And I would explain it to them and they say, well, tell me that and pretend that I am a six-year-old. Okay. And so I would do that. And by doing that, I learned. When I would write it down in the article on LinkedIn, I would find everybody under the sun who's in the SBA industry on LinkedIn who was, you know, 20 to 30 year old, you know, just starting out. And I would send them the article along with a copy paste introduction about myself, what I'm trying to build and what I'm trying to do and say, Hey, are you interested in connecting more? I sent that probably to no less than 500 <laughs> you know young up and coming sba people in the industry and of those 500 i don't i don't have a number but several of them reached back and we've been very close ever since but i would continue to send them updates so as i learned they learned as i had something come down the pipeline that was interesting they got that we weren't attorney and clients we were just friends we were colleagues right um, so I would send that to them over time. And after a while, they'd start moving up the chain in their organization. They'd say, hey, I know this guy, Scott Oliver, he does he does SBA work. He has a whole team that's been doing it for 20 plus years at his firm. They're not really active in marketing. We're not. There are some firms that actively market their SBA practice. We don't. Uh, but that would get to the higher ups at those banks. And all of a sudden I'd have the higher ups talking to some second year associate saying, oh, well, tell me more about what you do. Tell me more about what you're trying to build. Tell me more about what your firm does. Who is your mentor? How do they kind of come into the mix? If I'm talking to you, am I talking to a partner? Am I talking to an associate? All of those types of conversations would lead to relationships. And over time, that kind of went to the wayside and articles became less popular on LinkedIn, as you probably know, when I said, well, nobody's really paying attention to these articles. So I have all these people in my pocket now uh, who I can talk to, what's next? So I started kind of putting out more relatable content, I suppose, so less substance, more just life experiences on LinkedIn, and it was probably one of the first few attorneys to start doing that, along with some others um, who you would pro- you probably had on your show actually, and um, that kind of caught on. And it wasn't necessarily getting the attention of clients at that point; it was more uh, other attorneys, uh, more senior attorneys, or even more junior attorneys, or people who were interested in law. And we started, you know, talking to each other, building those relationships. And over time, clients, once we had them in the door from you know those first initial conversations, started saying, hey, this is, you know, a person, it's not just somebody who's working on my deals. There's the quality work, but they have these experiences as well. And I think that's relatable. And that's that's served me well since then. Now it's it's more, it's not I wouldn't say fun, although I enjoy it. It's more just what is something that's happening in the industry or in the legal profession that I can put out there and give a voice to somebody who might not want to or feel that they can't uh, say online because some people can't. I try to share that with people.
0: You make a good point, perhaps unintentionally, about your general philosophy here, which is that so many law firms, whether they are personal injury direct-to-consumer type firms or large corporate firms, they always want to connect an ROI to their marketing and business development efforts. If I take Scott out to this ballgame or if I sponsor Scott's golf charity event or I sponsor his company's program or conference, do we get business from that? And if so, what's the percentage versus what we spent? Is it three to one, five to one? And in our professional rush to find an ROI, sometimes we lose track of the power of relationships Mm -hmm. and how they snowball and compound. And a relationship that may have started three years ago, it might take some time to bear fruit, but when it does, it could bear fruit that makes a one-to-one ROI or two-to-one ROI look ridiculous, right? Because now you had one dinner with someone or you connect with them on LinkedIn and they are sending you a steady stream of referrals, and they're bringing you on to their conference, or they're putting you on as a co-author to an article that's going to go to exactly your key target audience. We're always in a rush to try and get a return on investment. And I think sometimes you have to just let humans be humans. Let's just network. Let's just talk and see where our common ground is. Maybe grab a coffee or a beer and stay in touch. And you have to give it time, right? If I'm a referral source, or if I want to build referral sources, and Scott gives me referrals... I have to give Scott a chance to live his life and to cross paths with people he could refer to Wayne, right? It just, that's just the way life is. You're taking this approach of not just putting stuff out there that's going to be digested by clients, but kind of spreading around your efforts and investing in people when they're younger. That's the kind of thing that bears fruit. Again, not today, not tomorrow, but in a couple of years, you bear the fruits of that labor, even though you were not hard pressed to try and get an instant ROI, it kind of takes the stress off of it, right? Like I'm just going to do this because I know how it could turn out, not because I am desperate to bring a client in tomorrow or I don't hit my numbers.
1: Yeah. And I I think you bring up a good point there and I get maybe unintentionally on your end too, (laughs) is that sometimes it needs to be unintentional. Relationships don't always have to be intentional. Like, is there there a point in your career or are there times when you're supposed to be strategic and, you know, doing something because you expect some sort of ROI? Certainly, right? If you're looking at, you know, investing in a company, if you're looking at investing in um, anything, really, you want to have something come back to you. But when it comes to investing in people, at least, I've found over the years that when I'm trying, trying hard to get business, it usually, I mean, it works sometimes, but other times it just feels rehearsed. It feels uh, kind of slimy. The times that I have found that I've been able to get the business in the doors, I'm not even trying. That, that's, it's a really good um, discussion point with the first year stuff that I was. doing. I wasn't trying to get business at that time. I was trying to relate to other people who were my age who were struggling, uh, whether it was at law or at these at these big banks or lenders, and just saying, "Hey, I can't, I can't." take you on as a client, but I want to talk to you. And that was cathartic for me. But it turns out later down the road, it was a pretty good idea. In hindsight, it was very good of me to be doing that at that time, even though I wasn't trying to get something out of it.
0: Some people tell you that if you're not embarrassed by the things you say and the things you do in terms of your marketing from a year ago or two years ago, that means that you haven't grown much. And I'm happy to say that I've grown a lot because when I look back at some of my emails, cold emails especially, when I first launched my company in 2016, I cringe now because you could almost smell the desperation. I just left Deckard. I am in a different field than where I was practicing at that firm and I needed clients, I don't have any income, I gotta bring clients in. And it's such a hard sell when you are more junior in your business and you are trying to learn this whole idea of entrepreneurship and marketing and business development. And I compare that to now where I'm fortunate enough, many instances where I'm not gonna press the clients hard. Here's what I do, here are my fees. This seems like on paper a good fit, but if we're not for one reason or another, that's fine. If I can't help you, I could probably send you someone who might be a little bit cheaper, might be a little bit more up your alley. That changes the perspective, right? I think people don't want to be sold. They like to buy. They want to be sold to on their terms. And if that's going through YouTube videos that you're publishing, articles you've written, they like the self-service model. We all do. Mm -hmm. Um, And I think it's helpful that the networking helps. This might sound strange, but it helps kind of masquerade the selling because it doesn't feel like selling Mm -hmm. and it really it's like long-term selling it's not short-term selling so it makes it go down smoother for everyone if it doesn't feel like scott is out there with his fangs out holding a retainer agreement trying to get me to sign this damn thing while we're having our first beer or our first coffee together
1: yeah a lot of it has to do with visibility too i mean if we're just talking strictly social media sometimes it, it it matters what you put out there and there are there are tricks tips all of those sort of things we can get into but just interacting in the space, whether it's actually creating the content, which I think is important uh, or just, liking somebody in the industry, uh, their post or contributing somehow uh, in the comment section, because the more that your name pops up, you you become a little bit more recognized. So that barrier to entry in the event that you do need to make the ask for somebody to put pen to paper in the future, it's a whole lot easier. They know you. They know what you're about. They might know your philosophies on certain things. They might know what your niche practice areas are, and it becomes a lot easier especially when they're, we're in an industry where there are so many people to choose from who can do the exact same thing as you can. How can you differentiate yourself in the marketplace and what benefits can you bring to the table aside from, again, that foundation, I don't want to underemphasize it, the quality work uh, in the space. That's still so critically important, but there's something more, or at least there should be, if you plan to kind of get ahead of everybody else and provide something a bit different.
0: One of the great things about content, especially social media content that might have a little bit of personal, of a personal edge to it is that to your point, there might be five, six other attorneys doing exactly what you are doing and marketing the exact same clients that you eventually want. But if you were connecting with your prospective clients and referral sources through content in a way that's personal and not just the substantive legal or business, that That's a big deal. And I give the example all the time of corporate defense attorneys. Let's say they are attorneys who do white collar or securities litigation Mm -hmm. or otherwise always facing off against plaintiff's attorneys. If you know you're talking to insurance companies Mm -hmm. and general counsel of large corporations often sued by aggressive plaintiff's attorneys, well, (laughs) you might be able to take some pot shots at plaintiff's attorneys not to fame them, not drop expletives, but you might be able to use coded language about aggressive, about profit-focused in a way that the readers of your content who are in those positions go, yes, Scott knows exactly what we're talking about. We deal with this all the time. You can lean into the attitudes that you think your clients are going to have and your referral sources will have because that shows them that you see the world Mm -hmm. the way that they see the world, right? It's not just that Scott is a good attorney who could help us with this litigation. It's that he knows that plaintiff attorneys or whoever, they're gonna to try to play these tricks or they're gonna try and do X or Y and Z and he knows that he's prepared for it. You, you signal that through dropping in little notes about how you see the world either professionally or of course with kids and travel and your hobbies. That's a great way to connect. It's like magic when you find people who do the same things that you do personally outside the office it covers so much ground that you would need multiple conversations to cover, but it's an instant bond. Once people see, oh yeah, Scott likes to camp or likes to fish or do X, Y, and Z with his kids, it's a whole different ballgame when you inject just a little bit of that personal content that you might not do if you're writing a Law360 article or you are publishing some law review article.
1: Yeah, exactly.
0: How do you come up with the topics that you cover on social media? Because on one hand, you post frequently. On the other hand, you post a variety Mm -hmm. of content. So where do you compile this content? Do you have the notes app in your phone? Do you have a pad of paper by your bedside like all great comedians do? How are you recording these thoughts and how are you deciding, gee, I want to talk about professional development today, maybe SBA loans tomorrow. Tell me about your process for compiling and actually creating the content.
1: Yeah. So I do have the notes app on my phone. And if you looked at it, you'd probably laugh <laughs> or, or make fun of me for the typos. I'm not sure. Uh, but I do put ideas in there whenever something pops into my head. And uh, normally uh, it's it's when I'm doing a cool down from a workout, walking on a treadmill. Uh, that's, that's kind of my thing. I, I get up super, super early in the morning and, and that's what I do for myself. I work out. Um, and I always at the end will take 30 minutes to just walk uh, and just kind of clear my head or uh, unclear my head, I suppose, and think about things and write them down. Um, But that's when it's just a bunch of drafts. It's just a bunch of thoughts that I just want to get on paper. Then I'll usually have three different buckets that I think of, and that's mostly SBA lending, law firm, mainly private law uh, experiences, uh, and then uh, also third client services. So those are the three things that really, if you took all of my content from the last four to five years or so, it probably falls in in one of those three buckets. Uh, And I don't have a certain time that I'll post them. I don't have anything scheduled like some people do. It's just if I'm inspired is a weird word for it, but inspired by a circumstance that's happened at the firm or I heard something from uh, one of my students at the law school that they feel they can't talk about, I'll write about it Uh, and I will usually post it in the morning, usually Monday, Wednesday or Friday. Uh, but I'm not 100% consistent on that. I don't have like a timer that goes out. It's more what's happening today, uh, what's happened to me, what's happened to somebody else, or what's something that I've seen on a deal recently that I think people need to know more about. A good example of like the substantive side of it would be if I'm writing about SBA, it's usually going to be from the lender's perspective. Uh, Although we do some by-side representation here, M&A work, um, it's usually the lender's perspective. So a couple weeks or so ago, I kept noticing that um, we were hearing about complaints from other SBA law firms that they're unable to do disbursement schedules, settlement statements, where all the money goes, right, Uh, to be able to balance and do math. okay? math for lawyers is like kryptonite and people hate it. I love math. Um, So I said, well, I'm just going to make a post about how to balance a settlement statement and it's boring, it doesn't get a lot of engagement, doesn't get a lot of eyes, but if you look at the analytics of it, the eyes that it's getting are clients, non-clients who might be clients in the future, prospective clients, all of these things, and they're now looking at this and saying, oh, all right, well, he puts out content that I like to read and maybe this is a little bit more you know, plain Jane, bland, boring stuff, he knows what he's doing. Uh, and he's identified something that's difficult, some pain points of other law firms or pain points within certain banks that maybe don't hire outside counsel And he's showing some level of knowledge about this. Maybe I need to give him a call. So it really just depends.
0: Did you have any issue getting approval to post as frequently as you do to have as large of a presence? That sounds ridiculous. But (laughs) many law firms, and I'm sure your firm has some sort of social media policy. Many firms have social media policies some firms don't, and for example, Lisa Stamm, who is a former Baker McKenzie attorney who I had on the podcast a while ago, she's based in Canada, mm-hmm. she started blogging in the late aughts. Baker McKenzie at the time did not have a policy and actually told her to blog under her own name apart from the firm mm-hmm. that was helpful to her because when she left the firm, she took the blog with her and there was no messy divorce because the firm said, this is yours. Yeah. So firms do sometimes have funny approaches to getting their attorneys to quote unquote behave when they are marketing online. Did you, I assume you don't now, given your lofty role, lofty position as an equity partner, but before as an associate, did you have to jump over any hurdles to be able to get out there? Did anyone pull you aside and say, hey, Scott, like maybe you should tone it down a bit?
1: No, I I actually didn't. And I I have a lot of friends at some um, larger named law firms that have found that there are actually policies that say you can't post on linkedin or you can't talk about this or you can't do it under the firm's name Um, i never received that i never post anything under the firm's name it's always been my me it's always been my own brand and what i say Uh, but i've never received pushback on it if anything it's more well why are you doing this how do you have the time is there a benefit to it i've I've received that quite a lot Uh, but i've never received any negative you shouldn't be doing that you can't be doing that etc Um, And I think that's a good thing. It it blows my mind that there are firms that say you shouldn't or can't do that. I get it in certain practice areas, right, with confidentiality. But as long as the attorneys or the firm that is doing the content creation is abiding by the ethical rules strictly, or at least somewhat strictly, abiding by those ethical rules, um, you're not going to get yourself into any hot water. And it's just like anything else. You know, people, when Facebook was more of a thing, would say, you know, when you go to college or you get a job to scrub your Facebook because people would post things that are inappropriate. Well, LinkedIn or Twitter, uh, more so LinkedIn is much more buttoned up. So your scope of what you can and should post is a little bit more restrictive. And if you're out there, you know, posting political opinions or or saying some things that you might not shouldn't be saying, you've you've got bigger problems uh, on your hand. And and to me, it's at, at least at the law firm, at the law firm level, when we bring people in, they're professionals, you know what you're doing. You can handle yourself and i think that's the approach that they took with me and when they saw that you know hey it's getting some results here uh this is a good thing this is fine from them
0: this seems to be easily resolved by an annual training where yeah. you have someone who's not just an in-house marketer but someone an attorney who's out there posting on social media talk about the do's and don'ts not mm-hmm. just from a technical standpoint and from a substantive standpoint but from an ethical standpoint Like, yeah. just remember don't blurt out things that you do with your clients. You might not want to be filming a selfie from the court steps or don't send photos where you could see a client's name on a deal paper. Mm -hmm. Let's be smart here. When you cover what I would consider to be the non-substantive legal work that you do, and you're talking about being an attorney, being a partner, how do you avoid, I don't want to call it pandering content, but how do you avoid saying things that other people have said 17,000 times that are meant to go to a broad audience so that are meant to probably resonate with more people, but yet it's like you scroll through it and you see 27 times in your feed about hustling, about showing partners as an associate that you own the matter. Like, How do you avoid this almost like templated, lower end, almost self-evident content?
1: I, it's because I usually do it based off experiences. If I'm posting something, it's probably happened recently. And I'll even do that sometimes. I'll, I'll go to an associate that I've talked to and I said, oh, well, that's an interesting problem. Do you mind if I talk about it? Do you mind if I talk about it online? I won't say your name, but let me talk about it. And I'll say, yeah. So usually if I'm writing, I'm writing to one person uh, or I'm writing to a class or I'm writing to a group of people. And I find that if you have the target, you wouldn't even call it your target audience. If you have somebody that you're speaking to, even if it's one person, there is another person or another hundred or another thousand people who are wanting to hear what you're going to say. Um, so it's not looking at others' content and saying, oh, how can I say that in my own words? It's saying, well, something unique has happened to me, or I have a thought about something. Here's what it is, and I'm going to put it on paper. Normally that is authentic because it is authentic. <laughs> you know, that's, that's really all there is to it on that piece.
0: You mentioned about the ideation early in the morning. I'm a 5 a.m wake up upper because I go to the gym at about five 30. So I'm obnoxious like that. And I'm not afraid to say it. Perhaps you were equally obnoxious and happy to talk about the early time you wake up to go to the gym. You're not teeing up your content. You mentioned you're not scheduling it. So how are you able to like rip yourself out of the day-to-day craziness that is either life in terms of in the office with clients or life outside the office with family and friends? Do you harden off time? where you going to be posting? How do you balance the craziness of what you're doing for a living with the need to publish on social media at certain times.
1: It's because I'm I'm very regimented about it. I I actually will not, I won't say will not because you look back and find some, right. That are published at different times, but 99.9% of the time, the only time that I'm publishing is when I've went to the gym. I've had that idea of while I'm walking during that 30 minutes and I publish it that morning. Um, I don't really do too much on social media during the day unless it's Twitter uh, or unless it's just commenting on somebody's uh, content or trying to further along some sort of conversation that I think is important. So from a time-consuming perspective, social media for me, it's not time-consuming at all. And the only portion that is time-consuming is enjoyable. And if you have that, you have balance. I do have to you know, kind of stop myself sometimes from doom scrolling or or thinking too much about a post or trying to be too active. Because I, I see some people online and I'm saying, how do you do that? I, how are you plugged in that entire time? And how do you focus on your work? I don't know and that maybe they have some sort of magic trick. That's fine. Um, but for me, I I'm, I'm an attorney first, uh, but the content I see is just an extension of my practice because it's mainly interacting with people who are either in the profession or clients. Um, I've, I've toyed around with the thought of, of, you know, trying to grow an audience, uh, but I've never really intentionally tried to grow an audience. If you put the content out there, um, you'll get followers or you'll get people reaching out, wanting to be a part of something. I kind of disagree with with the content that you see out there when it's clearly clickbait, um, uh, at least for practicing private law attorneys. And you're just like, you're trying, you're just trying to grow your audience. An audience that's, that's small but focused is so much more powerful, especially for practice and business development uh, than an audience that's massive, but it's not focused at all. It doesn't have your target market. It's not niche. It's not all of those things.
0: Those general clickbaity posts tend to be the ones that are ghostwritten by either LinkedIn ghostwriters or Twitter ghostwriters. You could tell. I obviously have nothing against ghostwriters since I ghostwrite thought leadership articles for law firm partners, but... I think you do lose a little bit of that personal aspect. I know you'll lose the personal aspect if you are hiring a ghostwriter for Twitter or LinkedIn. Mm-hmm. To talk about generalities, right? Yeah. They're not gonna be experienced enough to be able to get into the weeds of what you substantively do. So they have to keep their content to a very high level or they'll do some research and find tweets or LinkedIn posts that did very well. Mm-hmm. So they, re- they, re- they tinker with them and they rephrase them and they hope that it, go- it does equally well with their clients, audiences. What are you seeing in terms of LinkedIn and Twitter? And we don't have to get into the business drama that is Twitter or now X, depending on when you're listening to the podcast or watching the video. But what are you seeing the differences in terms of LinkedIn and Twitter audience, content type, speed with which you want to respond? Just give me some, some high-level views there.
1: There's so much on that that we could do an entire show on this. Uh, but somebody once described, I'll, I'll butcher this, but they described... Uh, LinkedIn is basically the office, although you can have a little bit of fun, right? But Twitter is kind of like the after hours bar or the after hours um, restaurant where you just go hang out with your buddies. Uh, And both are incredibly valuable, but they're very, very different. Uh, They're very different in terms of what you can post, how you can post, the frequency of which you post and all of those different things. But for me and my practice, the reason that I started being active on Twitter was because the audience is so different. So I represent banks and lenders. Banks and lenders and the parties that work within those institutions are on LinkedIn uh, quite frequently. Um, The higher-ups, the management-level people are on LinkedIn, and they're looking at you. They're looking at uh, your profile. They're reading all of these things that stick within their mind because it's a long-term platform. Your information's there. It's much more detailed. Your content's there, and it sticks around for a long time. Twitter is the opposite. Uh, it's much more frequent. It doesn't stick around for a long time. You can mess with it. You can have a little bit more fun. Uh, it's more practical uh, in some ways. There's more conversations happening. But the people who are on Twitter uh, are more of the entrepreneurs. They're the buyers of these businesses that my clients finance. They're salespeople on Twitter. Uh, but mainly, uh, there's a lot of these people who are searchers, who are looking to buy businesses or people who are selling or people who are involved in the deal process. So it's much more granular. I got on Twitter and I don't post quite as often on there, I definitely don't do as much substance or threads on there, it's just time consuming, Uh, but I do watch and I listen to what people are saying and I listen to my client's customers and I look at what are the pain points in the deal process, what are the issues that you're seeing, what are the questions that you have, what are the deal structures that are interesting, maybe not eligible, but interesting nonetheless. And I take that information and I use it to train my team. I use it to talk to my clients. So when I'm hired by my clients, they know they're getting the work on the deals. But I also have this kind of pulse on the entrepreneurial SMB, uh, ETA type sides of their customers and can help smooth the deal process for the lenders, which helps their clients or figure out what are their clients not liking about the deal process so that they can fix it. So try to figure out a way to make the client better better through observations that I have online. And, and I found that to be valuable and it helps me be a better attorney. Finally, I think that the last piece of that is, is Twitter. There's a lot of active m and attorneys on there. Some of which you've interviewed, right? Yeah. You mentioned Eric earlier. Um, they're fantastic. Uh, and I've developed relationships with them. And once I have that relationship and I do a deal with somebody and I know that they're really, really good m attorneys, now, if my client says, oh, I just don't have an m and attorney who can do this in here. I can say, well, I know some people uh, who will do a fantastic job and I can hook you up with them uh, and I know how they work. I know what they prefer. I know what their forms look like. I know that their forms are eligible. And if they're not, we'll work together to get it done quickly. It almost harks back to our initial part of this conversation where we were talking about growing with your client. If you can grow with your client, you make their process smooth, your process smooth. If you know the attorneys or the title companies or escrow companies on the other side who are working on the deal, just not directly with you, and you work well with them, deals are a walk in the park. You're no longer having to deal with an attorney who only practices family law on an M&A deal or dealing with, you know, an AmLaw firm that only does, you know, $100 million deals when, hey, this is an SBA transaction. It's under $5 million. Those look very different. So those relationships that usually stem from Twitter have been incredibly valuable, both personally and professionally to me, to share ideas and just figure out, you know, what are we doing here? How can we make this better for our clients? And how can we kind of accelerate our own careers to be the best attorneys we can be?
0: You raise an interesting tactic that I think attorneys don't do enough of, which is, and I'm guilty of this because I talk about content creation, but observing Mm -hmm. and Some people might call it lurking. We'll call it observing and just being back there in the shadows and looking at what people are saying, how they're saying it, what's working, what's not working. Yes, social media is about commenting and yes, it's about hopefully participating and posting, but there is something to be said for you, keeping your mouth shut and just observing and strategically observing, right? Who is saying what, what kinds of posts are getting the most response hopefully good, but which ones are getting bad responses? What's the most popular? What are these frameworks? What are these structures and learning? Because in a way, anything that someone tells you in a presentation about social media trends today is -hmm. going to be out of date, probably within 30 days, maybe even 50 days, maybe you have 60 days, but things are always changing on social media. There's always trends. And the best thing you can do is to look at your phone, not doom scroll, but to say, I'm going to take 10 minutes. I'm going to, maybe I'll comment, maybe I'll retweet, or maybe I'll repost on LinkedIn. But my goal here is just to absorb and soak it in. Then I'm going to put it down and think about this and let kind of my brain work in the background and come up with ideas. But so often you could learn by just watching. Mm-hmm. And no one has a monopoly on great content. No one has a monopoly on building their social media presence. They learn by doing as well, right? The posts that someone with a thousand followers has today is going to be different than the posts they publish when they have two thousand, five thousand, fifteen thousand. It just mm-hmm. it comes to the territory. So I think it's a very astute point: is to just watch sometimes, right? Go where your audience is, and see how they're consuming content, what they respond to. Who are the big names out there? And figure out what your strategy and what your plan could be based on that knowledge. Mm-hmm. You mentioned this earlier. How did you know that your efforts on social media were bearing fruit?
1: I think it's when, honestly, when I would get clients who would be working with me and say, oh, I saw this. I, I saw this online or, or I'd introduce myself to them and say, oh, I know who you are. I know who you are. You're that LinkedIn guy. I don't want to be called the LinkedIn guy. Please don't make that thing. But they say, oh, you're that guy from LinkedIn that posted that thing. I remember this. And I was like, oh, that was like a year ago. And they're like, yeah, it really helped me. Uh, And it's like, that's, that's really cool. Right. And sometimes that was clients who would say, oh, I saw the thing on EPCOCs or I saw it on insurance. I'm, I'm glad you said that. That makes sense to me. Let's talk more. But more so it's actually people who will show up in the direct messages. Um, who will say, uh, I was a law student at the time and I was really struggling and you said this and it really it really hit home and it kind of made me make certain decisions about what I want to do with my life that made a big difference. Or maybe I had a tough conversation with one of my partners or maybe I had a tough conversation with myself and said, do I even want to be an attorney? Uh, or yes, I do want to be an attorney or yes, I want to be in that practice area. Those messages uh, mean a ton. and I've, I've received some pretty... Lengthy messages uh, of both either appreciation or questions uh, from younger students or younger attorneys who just say, hey, thanks for putting that out there. I didn't want to put it publicly, but I just want you to know that you're making a difference here. And that that really means a lot. And it makes uh, for a good point there, too, with social media for attorneys individually, at least. unless you are trying to grow a following and become you know, 100,000, 100 million, whatever it is, uh, people who are just following you uh, and you have a more focused audience, a lot of times when you put something out there, it might not have a ton of clicks. It might not have a ton of likes. It might not have any comments, but the magic is in the DMs, right? It's the stuff that people don't see. So even if you're putting stuff out there and you're getting discouraged, all that person's practice area or what they're doing isn't interesting, you don't know that. Uh, you don't know what's happening behind the scenes and just one person that it, that it hits home to, whether it's business or personal or whatever it is, that can have a massive impact that's worth more than a million likes.
0: Can you connect real revenue to your social media efforts?
1: I've never tried. Uh, I, I would say there is definitely, uh, it's definitely there, um, but it's mainly, I would say, uh, from what I was doing eight, nine, 10 years ago, uh, that's really starting to bear fruit now. So it's such a long-term game, and it's such a long-term game that you didn't even know you were playing when you were playing it. Um, and it, it's it's been fantastic, and I, I'm really looking forward to seeing how that plays out in the next five to ten years in the future because it's we, we have some people who are who are in the same sort of space who are doing big things, who have big aspirations, and I think everybody's kind of working together to make this thing really interesting.
0: Well, as we start to wrap up, I wanted to ask you advice for attorneys who want to dip their toes in to social media, who still aren't on there actively, but they know they should be. You gave a little bit of that with your most recent answer. So I want to give you a little bit of a curveball. What do you think social media marketing for lawyers is going to look like over the next few years? Where do you think the nature of content, the nature of information being shared is going given what you're seeing in technology, what you're seeing in the practice of law.
1: Mm -hmm. Unfortunately, I'm not going to end on a negative, but unfortunately, I think AI and some of the technology is causing people to use that for social media. And that's causing uh, some of the posts, some of the content to be a little bit authentic and in worst case scenarios, incorrect. Um, I think that's going to start happening more and more as people latch onto it. But at the same time, Uh, I think there will be a push and then there will be a pullback from it because the people will start doing it, but you can see through it pretty easily. And those are going to start to lose interest in the people who are doing that uh, and more gravitate to those who are being more authentic, uh, who do have a mix of professional and personal life that are writing content either on their own or through assistance from others uh, that are truly valuable rather than just saying, hey, chat GPT, give me the the four four different entity structures and tell me what the benefits are. You know, that's very clearly um, just the same thing you'd get from a newsletter. Uh, and It's not as fun and personable as, as what I think is is the most enjoyable experience of, of social media, that authenticity, uh, that, that communication back and forth uh, between people, not, not robots.
0: As I said in numerous venues, credibility is the new authority mm-hmm. when it comes to AI-created content, which is to say that... If attorneys are putting out content that is spot on to what their clients are looking for and goes right to what their target audiences want to learn about, slowly those firms will be able to hopefully pull those people away from Google, away from AI. Because right now, AI is not giving you, or most AI is not giving you citations when you ask it a question regarding an area of law or a business issue, it's not giving you any indication of where that information came from. Compare that to Google. When you're on Google, you can see the links and, oh, well, this law firm is number two on the the results. I know they're good. I know that I can trust them. I'm going to go to them and click that article. So attorneys in a way have to understand that AI might pull people away from their sites and give them the answers. Thus, I think There's opportunities for law firms to really be the go-to firm Mm -hmm. for, let's say, SBA-related legal issues and business issues. But from a content perspective, right, we are going to build a a content center, videos, podcasts. We're going to be where SBA lenders go Mm -hmm. because if they rely on the internet in terms of AI or Google, they're not going to get the best quality stuff. We have it. We need to create it and make sure everyone in the industry knows that we are the people to come to for our content regarding the issues that our clients care about, whether they're legal issues or business issues. Scott, thanks so much for joining me on the podcast, giving us all of your insights and tips. Where can people go to learn more about you?
1: Yeah, so the best place to find me is probably LinkedIn. Uh, so it's just Scott Oliver on LinkedIn. And uh, then my handle on Twitter is Oliver underscore A-T-T-Y. A-T-T-Y, like attorney, uh, or our website, lewisgapis.com.
0: And for the sanity of our listeners or viewers, I'll put your Twitter handle and your LinkedIn handle in the notes below so they can easily find it. Scott, thanks again for your time. And I'll be seeing you on LinkedIn, Twitter, or some other social media platform.
1: Sounds good. Thank you.
0: Well, that's a wrap for this episode of Legally Contented. Thanks so much for tuning in. Check out the episode show notes for more information about our guests and for links to resources that we discussed during the episode. We'd appreciate your feedback and recommendations for future guests. Email us at hello at legallycontented.com. Hello at legallycontented.com. We would appreciate if you told your colleagues about this podcast, if you subscribe to the podcast and urge them to subscribe as well. And while you're at it, maybe you could even rate and review the podcast on your favorite podcast player. Until next time, thanks so much for tuning in to Legally Contented.